This is this. This is refracted. Refracted reality. I'm Albert Borgman. I'm Lisa McMahon. I'm Paul Butler. My name is Norman Wurzba. I'm Pamela Butler. I'm Josh Koss, and this is Refracted Reality. Food, it's essential to life, and it's what we're talking about on this episode of Refracted Reality, how food shapes our lives and the stories that food can tell about us. Dr. Albert Borgman believes that food has large cultural implications. The way people get their food, prepare it, and consume it tells you the story of those people. And it may be a story of distress, as when there's hardly any food to go around and people have to, you know, eat nettles and grass. And then it may be a story of distress in that you take everything to yourself. And uh, it may be a story of distress in that you, you know, wolf it down like, like an animal. But it tells you what the condition of these people is. Yes, we, we learn a lot about a group by how they get and prepare and consume their food. That's sociologist and writer Lisa McMinn. You know, we, we figure out how they're connected or disconnected to the land and to each other and even to overall health. You look at the obesity and the diabetes rates we have among children and we're very aware that we're learning a lot about us by how we are eating and getting our food. And we're not doing really well. You know, we're eating on the run, we're eating thoughtlessly, and I think what, what needs to be blamed here is not the individuals who act that way as consumers of food, but the individuals as citizens who allow a culture that is conducive to that terrible behavior to come into being and not to challenge it and not to change it. I think there's a lot of class issues too, that there are people who would like to have better access to better food, but for complicated reasons they don't. But I do like it when you think of it as, what do we learn about a culture or a nation? And the way they get their food does tell you a lot about them. How they treat their animals says something about them, you know. For a lot of, say, anthropologists throughout the last, say, 100 years or so, there's been this acknowledgement that eating and food are systems of communication. Dr. Norman Wurzba. What we eat, who we eat with, the way that we eat it, communicates to others what we value. So for instance, if you think about today's fast food meal, eaten in a car on the way to somewhere else, what you're communicating is that food doesn't really matter to you. It's primarily fuel. And you're also communicating that food is something that you eat alone, right? You're doing in a car. You're not sitting around a table having extended conversation with others, welcoming others in an act of hospitality. Eating is here reduced to life on your terms. It's reduced to convenience as the highest value or cheapness or affordability as the highest value or simply getting as much as you can for as cheap as you can, right? And those are the values that are communicated in a fast food meal. And so we're saying that we should be able to have life on the cheap. We ought to be able to have life on our own terms. As Christians, we're often willing to pay lip service to the idea that life isn't on our terms. Instead, it's on God's. But do our actions match what we say we value? We're quite happy to see God's creation abused. We're quite happy to see agricultural workers taken advantage of. We're quite happy to see animals, right, that are 
treated in a horrible fashion, right? So eating becomes a way for us to say, is there integrity between what I say and what I do? It's sort of that daily exhibition in which we can try to try to understand what we really care about. I live in a town where every once in a while I'm in the right place at the right time, a truck goes by on its way to slaughter that's full of chickens and the sides are left open and you just see these utterly miserable, vacant-eyed birds and you know their whole life has been defined by misery. And if you look into the industry, many places are now um, banning the battery cages that laying hens are raised in, but they're crammed into these little cages where they can't even extend their wings. They can barely turn around and they have to clip everybody's beaks because in that kind of condition, they just become very, very aggressively pecking each other. And they get nothing of what God intended for them in terms of a life that would be flourishing. They don't get sunlight. They don't get to dig in the dirt. And it's it's that kind of misery that we do because those eggs are so cheap. America has an obsession with having food that is cheap and convenient. And I use that word very intentionally. They're just, I don't, I don't think they're nearly as good for us either because they're coming from hens that don't have any of their normal um, kind of well-being looked for. Pigs is another very, very sad one. Cows, we hear more about. Um, it's not great, but they're probably treated better certainly than pigs or chickens are. And you realize that we're doing a lot of very inhumane things in the name of cheap food. Christians need to ask whether or not this highly industrialized food system that we have doesn't reflect a way of being in the world uh, which is premised upon ingratitude, which is premised upon exploitation uh, and control, whether or not those are values that need to be challenged, not because we want to overthrow the entire food system, but because we want to have a food system that more clearly honors the life and the death of creatures, that more clearly honors and respects and rewards the work of, of farmers and agricultural workers and food service providers, right? Because we know that farmers and food service providers and, and agricultural workers, many of them migrant workers, are treated terribly in this country, uh, and that needs to stop. So the alternative that people are looking for is our standard agribusiness where food is raised God knows where and God knows what kind of conditions. And there are so many invisible links that we don't know what we're complicit in. We're doubting whether or not it's all good for our health. And so the invisibility of that is part of what's troubling people. And they want more more definite links to their food and more visible connections to it. So the local, local food movement gives it to them. They can go see a farm and talk to the farmer about what kind of practices they use. They could meet their cow. You know, it's very Portlandia to talk about your chicken and, you know, did this chicken have a name before you eat it? Here is the chicken you'll be oh, enjoying tonight. You have this information. This is fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, his name was Colin. Here are his papers, okay? That's great. He looks like a happy little yeah, guy who runs around. A lot of friends, other chickens as friends. Putting his little wing around another one and kind of like you know, palling around. But part of that is representing this greater desire to just be in more mindful and more aware of what am I eating? What's its history and who's growing it under what kind of conditions? 
This desire has not been primarily, or even necessarily, from the Christian community, but has been happening in various communities across the country. There's been a resurgence of interest in North America to go back to finding food that's close to our home, that is neighborly because we're buying it from our neighbors. And we want to know our farmers better. We want to know more about how our food is being raised and grown. And that movement is represented by farmers markets. Most most people are more familiar with that by increasing you-pick opportunities at farms and then by this little thing called Community Supported Agriculture, CSA, which have been around for about 25 years where farmers are growing quite a variety of food for for subscribers who sign up to um, let that farmer grow their food for a season. And all of these are creating a kind of food web where we're getting more in touch with who else is growing food in our neighborhoods and communities and how can we join this enterprise to have more local economies around our food and our food distribution. It's, it's real exciting if you're in the middle of it like we are. And we love seeing the energy, especially from young people, going into creating a different alternative to our typical food system. So what does this mean for Christians and how we think about food? When Christians in the past have thought about food, they've really focused on two major concerns. One of them, that there are a lot of people in the world who are still hungry, and so we've got a moral and religious responsibility to make sure that they have food that they can eat and that they have access to, to good food. But uh, that's that's been one big one. The other one has been vegetarianism, whether or not it's permissible for Christians to eat meat. And there's a lot of literature that's on these two topics, and some of it I think is really good. But as I thought about food, I realized that there's so much more that people of faith need to think about because food, for the for the first time, I think, in history, has been drastically reduced in its meaning and significance because today's typical eater thinks about food just as a commodity. And I think that's a huge mistake because when you think about food only as a commodity, the things that you most care about are whether or not it's available and whether or not it's affordable. And that's pretty much it. And you forget that food is, in fact, really a holy mystery because what eating requires you to acknowledge, and as a consumer today, many people don't feel they have to acknowledge this, is that for you to eat, others have to die. And this is something that was just commonly understood by most people throughout human history because they were involved in the production of their food and didn't simply purchase it at a store. But when you go to a store today, even if you buy meat, you don't see blood, you don't see bones, feathers, fur, any of that. And as a result, we think that meat's just something that shows up in a, in a package. Food. It's more than fuel. But what is it? It is our daily reminder that we depend on God to live on, on some very basic level because God is the one that keeps this seasonal cycle going, is sustaining the food chain, and unless I eat, my body will stop. And I want to be grateful then to God who is you know, the the engineer behind this magnificent food chain story, however you want to play, how it, however it plays out. And and I'm a dependent being. I need to be reminded that I am, I am a dependent being and what I depend on is food that needs to grow from an earth that's healthy enough to keep giving it and ought to be done in a way that I am 
honoring those who are growing the food for me and the sacrifices that get made along the way so that I can flourish. Food is actually God's love made nutritious, right? And I know that's a a bizarre way of speaking, but when you say that food is God's love made nutritious or food is God's love made delicious even, what we're saying is that God creates a world in which every creature that lives has to eat. And eating is, is God's way of saying, I'm going to nurture you into your life. It's, it's God's way of saying, I love you. And so you read the scriptures and you discover that one of the reasons uh, that God is so upset when there are hungry people in the community is because God doesn't want anybody to go hungry. Because if people go hungry, that means they are deprived of the nurture that God wants for everyone. And so food, rather than being simply fuel, is really the medium of God's own love made very material, made nutritious, made delicious. And so it's important for us when we think this way to realize that if food is this medium of God's love, this material manifestation of God's love, we have to think very differently about how we work with our land, how we work with animals, how we work with plants, how we work with other uh, eaters and food providers. All of this, I think, now needs to be understood and reformulated in terms of whether or not it witnesses to the love that God is showing upon every creature in this world. I, I really like how often, um, again, you see in Scripture you the description of eating together, sitting down together, breaking bread together, uh, descriptions of a banquet, that there is something that is just shared and wonderful. You know, food has an odd relationship in our culture because we both love it and we overindulge in it and then we feel guilty about eating that brownie because I shouldn't have had that sugar. And we've kind of missed the notion of um, food eaten in community is part of the social glue that just... That, that grows us, that helps us to flourish. I think food eaten alone can have that component too. I, you know, I used to just work through lunch. I'd be eating while I was grading or answering emails. And I'm, I'm trying to be more intentional about even when I'm alone of can I just sit outside with my lunch and, and be listening to the birds or be observing this or observing that. Um, but the community element of eating it's a, it's a time when people talk with each other. They're, it's, you're more relaxed. There are conversations that could be had that might not, might not have another context because you're not just sitting with that intention of spending time in community, sustaining your relationship as you also sustain your body by eating. Each Sunday, we host a church service here in our church home. That's Paul Butler. We met him and his wife, Pamela, in the first episode of Refracted Reality. They live in a church that they've converted into a home, and now they host a church meeting on Sundays in their home, which used to be a church. Yeah, it can be a little confusing at times. We have four families that uh, join us each week uh, for our service, and so much of our Friday night, Saturday during the day, and early Sunday morning are the kind of final preparations to open up our home for those who arrive. Each Sunday service ends with a meal together. The people who come will bring the side dishes and the dessert. 
And so together we create a, a Sunday dinner, not a potluck, but one that's been orchestrated to create um, a, a feast, something that will, uh, a feast that will represent the richness of the feast we've just enjoyed at our communion table. Focal things have their perfection in the sacrament. A focal thing gathers our beloved and opens up a history. Uh, in, in case of cooking, the, the traditions that have come down in the family, and then perhaps new traditions that you forge from uh, combining things that you have learned from different traditions. But there is a, a history that opens up in, in one way or another. And then, of course, when um, you finally sit down to dinner. We get up from the service area and move to our dining table to share the Lord's table, that it's set very simply with the goblets and um, the wine and the bread, and we have our communion service together, which is that spiritual feast, and then it moves right into our physical feast, that we've just shared a meal together in the presence of the Lord, remembering his death and resurrection, ascension, and his coming in glory, and and now we will eat together. But it's not just a, well, we're hungry, we should be fed. Um, Pamela and the ladies work really hard in in good linens, nice plates, nice presentation, that it's, it is a reminder that it's, it's a gift from God and that this feast is a reflection of his goodness in our life. Then we're ready to say life is good. And all these things are sort of pretty well true of focal things that I have mentioned but they're eminently true. They're finally true of the Eucharist, right? The Eucharist opens up, I mean, it's the center of the history of salvation. And so it opens up everything that came before and, and then it represents and reenacts what we're told to, to do in, in his memory. And uh, then, of course, it, it anticipates the future, you know, and, and the second coming when all the things that are good at that moment are beyond jeopardy and lapses and failures. And so, uh, so the Eucharist is, the, for us Christians, it's the eminent focal thing. So I think it, it's important, I think, for the vigor of Christianity to uh, um, make that connection between the Eucharist and focal things. Also in the way by understanding that the dinner is sort of a, a reenaction in the minor key of the Eucharist. And so we should celebrate it every, every evening. I'm a raised Protestant who was always very suspicious of the Catholic notion that in communion 
the bread and wine become literally the blood and and body of Jesus. But there is something about how I'm shifting up as as a good Protestant, you know, still holding that a bit askance, but really shifting if I believe that God and Jesus particularly is in and through and sustains all things then isn't there some element of truth that the bread I eat, the eggs and the honey I eat, are being sustained by the very nature and power and love of God? And there's something then very sacramental. I take from the good earth that God made into my body so that I may live, so that I may ultimately, hopefully, live in ways that are honoring to God and reflect gratitude back. But that makes eating itself a very sacramental I am taking into my body, this thing that God created and sustains and desires that all life can flourish through this amazing process of eating. And so it's, a, it's I don't know, that probably sounds really woo-woo if you, if you, you either get it or you don't, but, there, but it has become much more uh, sacramental to me to think about the food that I grow, the food that I eat. Um, how can I be mindful? Refracted Reality is Pete Campbell, Chris Burdick, Matt Tully, and me, Josh Kloss. You can find us online at refractedreality.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. You can email us at contact at refractedreality.com. Coming up on Refracted Reality. As a farmer, I'm aware, okay, okay, now we're at this point where the days are getting longer again and we're going to see that the buds are going to start budding out of the trees and we're going to you know I'm very much aware that when these blossoms show up here in six weeks it means we're going to have strawberries and all of that is this mindfulness that for years I never paid attention to and recognizing there's so much the earth tells us about what's coming if we pay attention to it it's about time coming September 15th